what shall we talk about? <coughs> yes. I have a question. Yes. Um, did the Buddha talk at all about what we say, I guess, in the West, um, or ask in the West about what's the meaning of life? What's the meaning of, of life? What's the meaning of life? Why are we here? All those sorts of questions. I'm wondering if there was anything in the about that. Uh, not in, well, it depends on how you phrase the, uh, or how, how you, uh, how you think of it. It was very clear that, in, in his teaching, that. Or take the question. Okay. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. So the the question was, did the Buddha say anything about the meaning of life? And he was very clear that a human existence is an extremely valuable opportunity. That uh, an opportunity that didn't really exist for beings in other realms, and therefore that. Uh, a human life should be should be used in, in the best possible way for achieving awakening. So uh, he never put it in these kinds of words, but I suppose that you could say that he taught the meaning of life was to, or the, or the purpose of life, you know, meaning purpose was to. Uh, to live the spiritual life and to live it to its culmination. So that you could come to the point of saying the holy life has been lived and what uh, needed to be done has been done. So I think in that phrase, what, what, uh, what was to be done has been done. Uh, uh, is, is the answer to what is the purpose of life, what is to be done, what needed to be done, is to achieve that complete and perfect awakening. Okay. O- awakening. Yeah. Is, is our loudspeaker working? Okay. Okay. Good. All right. So. Um, but the whole thing of meaning of life, well, this is part of the, the uh, dissatisfactoriness of the human condition is that we, part of what we crave is some sense of meaning and purpose. We want, we want life to make some kind of sense and when we see there's so much suffering and so much struggle in life and of course the ordinary person their their life is uh, you know you you grow up and you overcome all of those difficulties and then uh, you know life is is a struggle with many challenges and then you have children and then 
you tend to focus uh, all of your aspirations on you, you want things to go well for your children. You want them to uh, grow up healthy and have the things they need and be a success in the world. But we look at this and we just see, but for what? Just so that they can in turn struggle and, uh, and meet all kinds of challenges, uh, overcome some, fail others, uh, then get sick, old, and die. You know, uh, and this this is the endless, this is the endless cycle that we see as as Westerners without believing in reincarnation, the cycle of samsaras, what is the point of life? That we go through all of this, and what's the reward? Well, we produce some children, and hope we, hopefully, if we're, if we're lucky and things go well, those children are in a position to just repeat the whole thing all over again. And the more the more difficulties we confront in life, the imbalances and the injustices, uh, the more we crave some kind of meaning to make sense of it all and to give it, you know, to justify it somehow, to rationalize it, to give it, to give it some some sense. And, and so that is part of that is a very major part of the suffering that we experience uh, that uh, we'd like to overcome. And of course, uh, just as the ordinary person tries to overcome suffering and find happiness through manipulating the world, we tend to look for meaning somehow in something outside of us somewhere, and then, and this is this is what's behind a lot of spiritual searching, you know, uh, and in its in in our intellectually simplest approach to it, the idea of destiny, literature and mythology of all cultures have those stories and today we have our modern fantasy fairy tales uh, uh, movies and books and things like that people are born with a destiny well if you're born with some destiny then your life has meaning right of course if you look beyond that a little bit you, you find the meaningless the meaning disappears again but there's a sort of simplistic fascination in that we'd, we'd love to know that you know that our, our birth was foretold because we were to come and conquer the Dark Lord, and this was the meaning of our life. And so whatever things that we go through, it's all part of living out that destiny, and it satisfies that need. But, but that's just, a, that's just a, a myth that we cling to. And a little more sophisticated version of it is that, is that we, we begin to imagine that this is all part of something that there's some being so much wiser than us that has a plan and somehow even though we can't understand the plan that that being understands the, the plan and so the world is, uh, is full of stories to meet that need so you know we're here 
if there is one supreme God and creator and uh, we are here to uh, uh, worship that God and to spread the worship of that God to other beings and then the meaning of our life can be to enter into all kinds of strife and warfare and everything else to to conquer and convert the infidels so that they uh, uh, that they too worship the one true God. The world's full of that today. Um, and then there's there's still more sophisticated versions of it. What they all have in common, though, is that we're postulating something outside of ourselves uh, on a grander and grander scale to fill the internal uh, the, the, the emptiness uh, meaninglessness, purposelessness uh, uh, the injustice of life as we experience it and the Buddha didn't really offer anything of that kind but he offered something that I think is far more profound by saying that basically all those kinds of seeking are, in a sense, they're, they're naive, they're childish, because they're all part of the same delusion that uh, we are caught in and that is responsible for all of our suffering. And uh, to let go of those things and to try to awaken to the ultimate reality. And Buddhism, after the time of the Buddha, has devised a lot of more complex uh, sorts of uh, scenarios that we can fit ourselves into that make it seem like uh, you know there's some larger sense of meaning. There's a bigger story, somebody in charge, and so forth. But the original Buddha didn't really teach anything like that. He said, awaken to the reality. And when you awaken to the reality, that the very, essentially the teaching is that the, the very suffering that you experience that makes you look for meaning uh, is, is overcome through wisdom and understanding. But then what we see happens, we see in the example of the Buddha, he achieved enlightenment and the rest of his life had meaning and purpose. And when somebody awakens, their life does have meaning and purpose. Uh, it, arouse, it, it arises out of compassion, it arises out of that wisdom that realizes that, that your suffering is my suffering your happiness is my happiness and that we we are all the same uh, ultimately and so sometimes say after after somebody becomes enlightened why do they bother getting getting out of bed anymore and, and the reason is that their life does have meaning and purpose but that meaning and purpose is based in compassion love and compassion and and so uh, the purpose is then to try to uh, to 
bring as many other people as possible to awakening. So on the individual level of the, uh, of the psychophysical entity that has become awakened, the five aggregates that remain in the world of, of a Buddha, that, those five aggregates have a meaning and purpose that's based in, in that wisdom that transcends the individual separate self and gives rise to five aggregates that is motivated in the, in the same way that the ordinary worldling is motivated by desire and aversion. The five aggregates that has experienced awakening is motivated by love and compassion. Does a Buddha have volitional formations, do you believe? Does the Buddha have volitional formations? Right. Like one of the five mm -hmm. aggregates is volitional formations. Or right? mental formations mental in general. Formations. Uh -huh. Yes. The Buddha has a particular kind of volitional formations. In the Abhidharma, I was talking about that last night. The Abhidharma is where they take all of the teachings and the sutras and, and they are very carefully analyzed and, and laid out to basically account for everything. And in the Abhidhamma, there are, uh, there is a section that discusses volitions. And there's various categories of volitions, wholesome and unwholesome, and then the kind of volitional intentions that a Buddha has. And of course, unwholesome volitions of an ordinary person are those that are, that are rooted in, in desire and aversion and ignorance. And wholesome uh, volitional formations of an ordinary person are uh, rooted in, in the opposites of that, in a non-desire, uh, non-hatred non and uh, uh, wisdom or understanding, or put another way, generosity, loving kindness, and, and, uh, and understanding. The category of volitions that a Buddha has are said to be identical to those that are the wholesome volitions of a worldling in that they are rooted in compassion, generosity, compassion, loving kindness, and wisdom. But they are different in that even, even the wholesome volitions of an ordinary worldling still create, still have <clears throat> a karmic impact. They create uh, these uh, karmic propensities which continue and, and perpetuate themselves. Whereas all of the volitional intentions of a Buddha, although they come from the same wholesome roots, but they do not carry this, uh, this karmic propensity, or they don't create this kind of propensity. So that's the difference. <clears throat> so, yeah. When we, when we do wholesome things, when we act on good karma, um, because we still are 
attached to uh, the idea of, of, the, of self and uh, and to and have craving for existence, then all of our actions, including our good karmic actions, contribute to our continued existence as a self, as a perceived self. And the Buddha, there's no perceived. The Buddha is completely beyond, or any any fully enlightened being, is completely beyond even the inherent sense of separate existence. That's no longer part of the mind stream. So the five aggregates can function in the world and perform volitional actions, but because there already is, <clears throat> since the every vestige of, of clinging to both uh, self-nature and existence is already gone, those actions are not perpetuate, they can't perpetuate what's already gone. Does that make sense to you? Good, I guess I explained it fairly well then. Are there, um, are this kind of a, it's always one of those questions, uh, are there any fully awakened beings walking the earth today, our huts, and if so, how, how do we know, or how would we know? Well, my, my answer is yes, and, uh, I think they are, yes, and, and how do we know? Well, the only way that you can know for sure is to be an arhat yourself. Mm -hmm. right? If you're an arhat, then you can recognize another arhat. But if you're not an arhat, what you can do is you can make a very um, educated guess on the basis of, of what that being manifests in the world. And so if we, know, if we know what a Buddha is, then we look to see if they uh, walk and talk and act like a Buddha. A Buddha is completely free from suffering, absolutely, totally free from suffering. And a Buddha experiences a transcendental bliss that is completely unaffected by the circumstances of the world around. So an arhat, a bully, a, a, a Buddha, a fully realized being, these are one of the things that we would expect to see, is that they have, uh, that they are free from any kind of suffering at all. And, and that instead of suffering, there is a, a, a manifestation of a uh, a blissful serenity. And this is described of the Buddha in some of the sutras. When the Brahman Dana encountered the Buddha on the road, as a stranger, but from a distance, he, he was struck by the, the uh, radiant serenity and the, the blissful aspect of the Buddha. And noticing that, he approached the Buddha and commented on it, you know, and said that uh, uh, when I look at your radiant visage, I, I wonder what are you, you know, are, 
Are you a, are you a god? Are you a, some kind of a spirit? Are you this and that? And there's a number of other cases in uh, in the sutras where such comments are made. Um, oh, there was, there was a, a king who, the first time he saw the Buddha, was so impressed by his uh, appearance that he immediately sent his ministers to go and basically in, invite this amazing being to, to come and uh, take the highest position in his kingdom. Well, under himself, of course. Mm -hmm. you know. <laughs> so, what we would expect of an arhat is that, that they would be, uh, we should be struck by their happiness and by the way that their happiness is not moved by the circumstances, that they're able to, to ride with whether, whatever circumstances come and go without uh, being affected adversely by them. Another thing that we would expect, a Buddha has completely overcome all craving, all desire and aversion. And so for an arhat, then if we were to see that person, and, and especially over a long period of time, we would probably be struck by the fact that, that they never manifest indications of of craving in any of its form. This desire and aversion have been completely overcome in them. And then the next thing that we would notice, since what motivates a Buddha is not desire and aversion as it does with the worldling, but is loving kindness and compassion. So we should see in an arhat manifestations of loving kindness and compassion over and over again. And a Buddha has true wisdom. And so uh, we would also expect an arhat or a Buddha to, in, in order to uh, express that loving kindness, to be able to do so with skillful means, you know, be, be able to uh, be relatively highly effective in what they do. So it was one person that I know that you know that I, I believe is an arhat. I have no question. And if you think about it, I, I in many decades of being in constant public scrutiny, I don't think you can find anywhere anybody can point to anything that doesn't fit the description I gave you. And, and that is the Dalai Lama. I don't see, do you, do you know anything at all, any description you've ever heard of anything about the Dalai Lama which would suggest that he is not just plain imperturbably, blissfully happy, totally loving, very skillful, right? and doesn't show any manifestations of desire or aversion or hatred in spite of the incredible, if somebody was just trying to overcome, you know, their internal hatred, he, he'd be a person that, you know, you'd expect to see the, the, the lines of tension cut deeply into his face from trying to 
suppress the, the, the anger uh, and the frustration and all the things that uh, have happened to the people he's responsible for in his lifetime. But instead, you look at his face and, you know, it's, it's just beautiful. It radiates, right? And I've read many accounts of people who have spent time with the Dalai Lama. One was very interesting from a man who was a scientist who was basically an extremely obnoxious person, totally hated his father, didn't get along with anybody else in his field very well. But he worked with the Dalai Lama and spent many, many hours in the presence of the Dalai Lama on a project that they were working on. And he wrote about how he was transformed. Not by The Dalai Lama never said anything to him about his person, except to ask questions, ask friendly questions. But he said something about being in his presence just gradually melted all the, the, the hatred and the anger and stuff that he'd been carrying around. And so I, I think those are the kinds of signs that you would expect to see in, in, a, in an arha. And I believe that there, that there are, are others. Thich Nhat Hanh I That I don't know. I really know very, very little about Thich Nhat Hanh. Um, but he might. He, he fits all those categories. I think that's a well, see, that's the thing. If somebody fits all that category, you can't know for sure. You, and, unless you're, you, well, you become an arhat yourself, and then you'll know for sure, right? <laughs> because as an arhat, you can know the minds of others. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but if, uh, well, certainly, you know, you can't go wrong. You absolutely cannot go wrong by assuming that anybody who fulfills all those requirements is, is an arhat. Because even, even if you're wrong, uh, they still make a, that, that way of living and behaving and manifesting in the world is still the kind of ideal that you, uh, you can and should aspire to for yourself. Mm -hmm. And I have absolutely no use for supposed arhats who display bizarre wisdom by doing things that seem to be harmful to others or uh, uh, immoral in any way or anything else like that. That's, I go for the image that I described to you. And the crazy wisdom thing, I think, is just plain crazy. So, so you don't think that there's Buddhas that are doing things to, you know, yeah, that are, you know, in disguise. <laughs> so you don't buy that idea? I don't, I don't think that it's impossible, but I think there could be perhaps a kind of situation where the most skillful means that a Buddha could apply would be to somehow pretend that uh, for a period of time. But it's also, uh, you know, I would only believe they were a Buddha pretending to be that if it became really obvious that they were a Buddha pretending to be that after the need to be that way had expired. So, so do you, I, I'm going back to the aggregates, um, the aggregate of feeling or emotion. Yes. Um, I'm trying to 
wonder what a Buddha, like, I would believe that a Buddha would feel sadness. Well, able, like compassion and be able to cry and sorrow. Is there, do, what do you? They, no, the scriptures are fairly clear about that. No. There's two different things. Feeling and emotion, what, well, or at least what we refer to as feeling uh, in the context of the Dharma is pleasure and pain, uh, joy and, and grief. In other words, physical pleasure and pain and mental pleasure and pain. And it's quite clear that a Buddha experiences physical pleasure and pain in the same way that we do. But a Buddha does not experience mental suffering in the way that we do. That the mental kind of pain, mental suffering, does not exist for a Buddha. But, you see, a Buddha has an understanding of the way things are, an understanding of reality that completely transcends the appearances which cause us to be sad and which would cause us to cry. Now, in terms of, I, I have no problem at all with the Buddha crying for somebody else's benefit. But what it is said in the same, uh, in the same Abhidhamma teaching where it says that the volitional actions of a Buddha uh, are, are the way that I describe them to be. It also discusses, these are called chittas, minds or mind moments, that it says when a Buddha observes suffering and it elicits compassion, what the mind of the Buddha experiences is what is called uh, the uh, smile-producing chitta of a Buddha. And it is described in the, as in the terms that when a mother has a child that is frightened but not harmed, the mother feels great compassion for the upset and unhappiness that the child experiences. But you will see the mother smiling tenderly in the knowledge and the understanding that there is no cause for the upset that the child has. But nevertheless, with a heart filled with compassion for the suffering the child feels. And so this is what the smile-producing cheetah of a Buddha, that, that kind of mind that's experienced when a Buddha observes the, the suffering of beings in the world. There's a knowledge that transcends, the Buddha's knowledge transcends the appearances that are causing the suffering for the person. And because of that, there is the smile, but there is also the compassion and the motivation to do whatever possible to raise the person out of their suffering. 
And of course, there's only one way to do that. The way to raise them out of their suffering is to bring them to that same state of wisdom and understanding. So you don't think they ever shed tears? What's that? You don't think they ever shed tears? I don't see any reason why they wouldn't shed tears. But they're not shedding tears out of sadness. That's for the Kuan Yin, right? That's the Bodhisattva compassion. That's right. That's the Kuan Yin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Here's the cries of the world. Who knows? Yeah. That Bodhisattva. So the, 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 tears of, the tears of compassion, when they occur in the smile-producing chitta of, of an arhat or a Buddha or an awakened being, are not accompanied inwardly by sadness. That's the... Oh. Yeah, okay. Or loss or grief. Or right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, with, with all the suffering in the world um, that I feel sad about not being an awakened being. <laughs> yes, right. Of course you do. The thing, the thing, the thing that I feel most um, sad about and sometimes despairing about actually relates to the, the um, destruction of the planet more than what may be happening to mm-hmm. human beings or ourselves and each other. And what, um, and I'm not sure what the question is about this, but it, it's something about how, how, how would one see that? What's the context for seeing that within, you know, a Buddhist understanding of the universe or life or something? Well, does that question make a little bit of sense? Yes, uh, yes. and I, let, let me repeat it, and you can tell me if I understood it correctly, and, and then I'll tell you what I think. So you say when you think about, in other words, the destruction of the planet, not just of, of human beings, but the destruction of the planet, and then you think of all of this suffering, and you wonder what, you wonder what the Buddha would think about that. Well, um, I don't know. This may be kind of odd to to, to hear to, to say, but it, it's kind of weird to even admit this. I guess in public, but I, um, you know, people are dying, people are killing other people. All these things are happening to human beings, and yeah. that's sad and mm-hmm. terrible and unnecessary and all the other words that one can put on that and yet I have this sense of that there'll always be more human beings and there'll be more procreation and there'll be more human beings and things will kind of go on and continue to exist whatever that means but when I think about sort of the natural system of the earth including you know animals, plants, air, water the whole natural system of the earth it sort of feels like, well, if human beings manage to poison or destroy that, 
and there may not be that continuation of there will always be an Earth. Do you know what I'm saying? So, so to me, there's sort of this other level, this deeper level of of um, pain about that that I feel, and more helplessness and more despair about it, you know, etc. And um, I'm, I don't, I don't know how to. I, I feel like I need some help in how to think about that or something. I don't know. Okay, so that, that's sort of what I'm trying to get at. Some help in thinking about, and as what you're thinking in terms of is the suffering and destruction beyond that of humans themselves. Okay. Well, um, let me just answer you. Let me just point out some things that that, that I think that maybe are, are not coming necessarily from the place of a Buddhist teacher, but what I see and what I observe, and that is that I don't think there will always be people. And I think that the greatest danger is that there won't be any people. I don't think that human beings are capable of doing anything nearly so cataclysmic to the planet as perhaps the asteroid hit that uh, killed off the dinosaurs or other things that people who study the history of the planet say it probably happened uh, quite a few times before. Uh, even ice ages, but the, and definitely human beings are destroying a lot of other species. But um, the planet will go on. The question is whether there will be any human beings when the planet goes on. Okay. So, it's uh, it, human beings are very much endangered, along with those other species that we're taking along w uh, with us. But we're not going to take life. And, we won't, and you know, the Earth itself is far too uh, robust uh, uh, an entity to be more than temporarily disturbed by pitiful creatures like us. Why? Why? How, how, can, <clears throat> how can you have that certainty? Well, certainly at this, well, if we do, we brought ourselves to, to, to the brink of a very difficult situation. And, you know, even if we set off all of our nuclear weapons at once on, on, on the planet, like I say, it probably wouldn't be particularly worse than what happened with that asteroid that hit in the Yucatan Peninsula. Uh, and, and life would survive and life would keep on going in a completely new form. And the energy from the sun will keep supplying the, the planet, the, the air and the water will continue to circulate and eventually will uh, purify itself of the residue of, of humans' activity. I don't think we have that power. I don't think we are yet anywhere nearly that powerful. But let me go back more as a Buddhist teacher now and point out that two things. First of all, that we're not just one with each other, but with all sentient beings. Sentience itself is uh, that which we should be identifying with and relating to. 
And so, I'll change what you said there and say that I think life will go on, sentience will continue, and it will probably evolve and, and develop. And I think there's a kind of direction of what's happening in, in, in the universe. And the Buddhist teaching is much more, you know, in the, in the Buddhist teaching, it's that whole universes come and go. They're quite expendable. Don't get too attached to anyone, right? So uh, on a sort of a simpler level, I think that's what I'm saying to you. You know, it's like, okay, there's, there's human beings and what we've done on this planet, you know, and... Uh, um, we, we've come, we might go, but I think sentience will continue, life will continue. But there is still something very, very special about us as human beings. We can become awakened. And if we destroy ourselves, which I think is the big danger, not destroying the planet, but destroying ourselves. If we destroy ourselves, it might be a long, long time before there are sentient beings uh, in this part of the universe who can achieve awakening again. And so I think that would, that, I, th I think that's the big sad part. So, you know, what, how does the Buddha regard this? Well, Remember, Buddha is seeing things on, in a completely different way. All of these things that we're talking about are, are appearances arising in our minds. And uh, the Buddha is, a Buddha is going to see beyond those appearances to, to the reality that lies beyond that, which is said to be perfect. So I think that's the reason that, you know, if you're thinking that Buddha might look at what's going on in the world and lose their equanimity and get upset and unhappy and worried about it, I don't think that would happen. But I think they're still going to see so far beyond what, what we can see. What they're seeing is is going to be their way of saying is immune to the sort of disturbance that we have. But on the other hand, I think that a Buddha would, that the Buddhas that live today do feel that the most important thing that we can do is to see if we can can cure this special kind of being that we are, human beings, of our afflictions and turn things around and begin the process of a spiritual evolution so that we escape from the tyranny of desire and aversion and self-attachment and begin to move towards, uh, towards a genuine Buddha realm of all kinds of, of, of beings that are in all the different stages of awakening and where when 
new children come into the world when children are born. But that the values that they're taught and the education that they receive moves them in the direction of overcoming desire and aversion and self-attachment and practicing Dhamma and becoming awakened as hopefully their parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles are. But without attachment, if it doesn't work out, well, it's all just, uh, it's all empty anyway. <laughs> but there is what's called engaged Buddhism. And I think, I think Western Buddhists should be engaged Buddhists. Which means that, that even before we become awakened ourselves, that we, we see that as the direction to go and that, and that we are engaged in trying to, in doing whatever we can to try to make that change. Right now I see the most, the best thing that an engaged Buddhist can do is try to cut through all the nonsense and confusion that keeps people from becoming awakened so that they can become awakened and then cause other people to become awakened. So we have a growing nucleus of, of people in the world who are no longer at least so driven by desire and aversion. Because there's four stages of awakening. And in the first stage, uh, you are, are already able to function in the world uh, from a place of greater understanding and wisdom and therefore of less compulsion by craving. And when you reach the second stage, then that's even more so. Craving and desire have been reduced to uh, almost minimal sort of level of, of power. And when you reach the third stage, you've overcome completely craving for uh, uh, any sort of craving associated with the sense realm. So even before you become an arhat or a Buddha, you, you, as soon as you achieve the first stage of awakening, you become an example of, of a being free from selfless attachment, who is who with with who is uh, no longer driven compulsively by desire and aversion to the same degree that they were before, and so uh, then when 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 they do this, when there's enough people around like this in any of the stages of awakening, it's going to start having an impact when it's just a story that's very poorly understood and very few people have the patience to even learn learn about it enough to find out what it's already about, it doesn't have much impact. And that's kind of where it is right now. But so, so the beings that are in those first three stages, when they die, mm -hmm. as human beings, when they die, their karmic tendencies will go on into another so that essentially what, what they've gained, so to speak, in that lifetime isn't lost to the universe, so to speak. <laughs> I, I think... I mean, is that kind yes. of the way that would go? Okay. 
Absolutely. I think that is the way to I mean, look. I it's weird to use those words because everything mm -hmm. is, you know, empty yeah. or whatever, but you get what I'm asking. I get what you're asking, yeah. And that's, I, I think that that is the significance of, that's the way to view that particular teaching, is that anyone on any of those three paths, then, you know, that even if they didn't complete the process of awakening, what it means is that some being or beings in the future are going to inherit that accumulated, accumulated good karma, which is going to carry them the rest of the way. So that's really good news. And, um, yeah. Well, the six perfections, do they come from the Buddha, or do they come after? The six perfections, uh, well, they are not put together in, in that form in the sutras, but they are all discussed in different places in the sutras. So they are later, later gathered together. First as ten perfections, and then, uh, and then in the Mahayana they became six. So that's, that's uh, yes, uh, they did, the Buddha definitely taught the perfections, but he didn't, he didn't say, bhikkhus, I tell you, there are six perfections, and the first one is. He didn't present the teaching in that way, but he spoke many times on many occasions of, of each of these perfections in different ways. And so it was left for somebody else afterwards to put them into a list and number them. Well, I think if anybody really, really followed those six perfections, <coughs> down to the most subtle forms, more and more subtle and subtle yeah. forms than those, they, you know, if they really, really put themselves to that, that they could achieve a lot along the way of awakening. And, and providing um, a better place for everybody, for anybody around them, or anybody they came into contact with. Well, I agree with you completely, Allegra. I, the six perfections actually, essentially, com contain the entire practice of the Dharma. I mean, by by brief labels, but but if you expand on what each one of those mean. If you if you wanted to write a book on the entire Buddha Dhamma, you could you could do it by basing it on the six perfections because they cover they cover everything. They cover they cover virtue. They cover uh, meditation and concentration. They cover uh, overcoming uh, desire in the world through generosity. Overcoming ill will through patience. Uh, so everything's included in there. So somebody that practice now, that is that is the way to to change yourself. What we can look at in terms of the Buddhist Dharma is it's a formula for first of all changing yourself, changing your karma, uh, bit by bit, piece by piece, through through practicing, you know, the, 
the uh, first first few perfections, just through awareness during the during your life. But to really be effective, it has to be coupled with the practice of mindfulness, so that you're using the perfections as a tool to to create a new kind of karma for yourself. Merely suppressing the urge to do something unwholesome, or merely bullying yourself to go through the motions of generosity because it is uh, because you believe it to be the right thing to do or because you've joined a, you've joined a sangha where you know you're encouraged to do this has just absolutely minimal effectiveness but when you use the practice of the perfections as a way of changing your own karma and becoming a different kind of person that's where it's really that's where it's really powerful. And you can overcome a lot of the unhappiness and suffering in your life through, through doing that. So, but if you, ha- if you practice the last of the perfections, the, uh, the meditation and, and wisdom perfections, which basically means that you achieve awakening, then it's like doing in one in one quick move what would otherwise take forever to do gradually, piece by piece. It accelerates the process enormously. But you can't actually, well, it's questionable to me whether you can do the latter without doing the former first. I think you have to change yourself and you have to change your karma uh, before you can become awakened. And you have to do at least some meditation to develop the mindfulness in order to really change your karma enough to create enough momentum. So it's interesting. You know, your question was, did the Buddha teach the six perfections? Well, in a sense, that's all he taught. <laughs> but it was somebody else that numbered them and listed them. This has been a good discussion. Does anybody else have any other questions before we meditate? Deborah's deep in thought. Well, for the first time in several nights then, We'll have a chance to uh, do our last.